Coming to you from New York City, it's the Friars Club Podcast. Established in 1904, the Friars Club is the birthplace of the celebrity roast and has counted the likes of Frank Sinatra, Jimmy Fallon, Billy Crystal, Barbara Streisand, and Johnny Carson among its members. So come on in for a drink and some laughs with your host, Joe Sibilia. Hello and welcome to the Friars Club Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sibilia, and this week is a sad week for the Friars because we've lost one of our own. Jerry Springer passed away at the age of 79. Jerry truly exemplified the American dream. He came to the United States as a young boy, immigrated from England, and went on to enter the political arena, went on to become mayor of Cincinnati in the 1970s. After a stint as mayor, he became a local news anchor, and from there began hosting his own television talk show, and the rest is history. He changed the media landscape forever and became a cultural phenomenon. Uh, Jerry was every talk show host's dream guest. He was funny, he was charming, he was insightful, and he had great stories. And I had a few encounters with Jerry over the years. My first meeting with Jerry was when he was a guest on my college radio show at Hofstra University. He was kind enough to uh, be a guest on my program. And later I met Jerry on a show I was producing in Philadelphia. He came on to promote Judge Jerry, his television series, and again, could not have been nicer and could not have been more gracious. And then the last time I spoke with Jerry was on the Friars Club podcast. This was back in January. Little did I know that this would be one of Jerry's final interviews, but it was everything you would ask for as a host. And It was one of my favorite episodes of the podcast because you got to see a side of Jerry that you didn't always get to see. You got to see Jerry the comedy buff, Jerry uh, the entertainer, and I think that's what Jerry's legacy should be as a great entertainer because, uh, like his show or not, he knew how to capture an audience's attention and hold it, and he truly did have a gift as a broadcaster and as a friend to so many millions of people who watched him every day on daytime television. Uh, my thoughts and prayers go out to Jerry's family, to his friends, to his colleagues, uh, to his uh, former producer, Bert Dubrow, who was a guest on the Friars Club podcast, and, uh, of course, to his publicist, uh, Linda Schaffrin, and to so many others. Uh, Jerry was an original, and there will never be another Jerry Springer. So in tribute to Jerry, I'd like to present for you an encore of his appearance on the Friars Club podcast. Well, Jerry, uh, let me start off with uh, the rather obvious question, which is how exactly did you first become involved with the Friars Club? Uh, Well, I've always heard of it. In fact, the first involvement I ever had was, oh, man, it could have been 20 years ago. Uh, The Friars Club in L.A. uh, roasted me, and... uh, it was really exciting because all of my childhood idols were like on the dais, Sid Caesar, uh, Milton Berle, uh, you know, all these giants. And, uh, you know, to be roasted uh, by them. I think Bill Maher was the MC, Right. But uh, that was just so exciting because, you know, as a kid, I never thought I'd ever be on the same stage as these giants ever. And so... I enjoyed that. So this was in 1999 when the uh, California Friars roasted you. How do you find out that you're going to be roasted? Uh, do you get a special letter in the mail? Do they call you up and say, hey, would you come in? We'd like to roast you. Uh, how yeah, how does I'm, one get this news? Well, I'm 
my remembrance, I assume, was, you know, they contact the show and my assistant, you know, goes through the mail every day or phone calls or whatever. And, you know, we have our morning meetings and she says uh, and the next item, oh, you got this invitation to be roasted on the Friars Club. And I said, really? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. That'll be fun. So I'm sure that's how it happens. Yeah. So now. You were talking about many of the people who I was going to bring up uh, that were there on the dais. Um, what do you remember about interacting with some of these stars? Mil- Milton Burrow called me kid. <laughs> hey, kid. Uh, which, of course, I was. And uh, everyone was a kid next to him. But um, And he says, you just keep what you're doing. Because, you know, it was real controversial at the time. The sh- you know, the show was crazy. and uh, <laughs> To say the least. <laughs> yeah. But he... he uh, he says, you, you stick with it. This is, a, you're on to something. And, uh, you know, just all, just as nice as can be, you know, and you don't even know if these people are going to talk to you or anything. So, um, and it was the same with Sid Caesar. I mean, they were just so, you know, they, they were, they were there when there was no, there was no history for them to look at, to see how do you do television? They, they clearly, it. yes, they invented it, you know, in terms of the performance. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what's really comparable today. I mean, in terms of technology, um, obviously, social media and everything, they're all new f- platforms. But in terms of a new form of entertainment, um I don't know that we've had that since where, you know, there's been such a new frontier that you had to learn how to do it. And, uh, you know, they experimented with it. They had great shows. They had jokes that didn't work, you know, skits that didn't work. But they they paved the way for everyone that's come since. Well, probably the closest uh, paradigm to that would have to be, you know, YouTube, TikTok, and uh, social media in general, and of course uh, this medium, which uh, you and I are practitioners of, that being uh, podcasting. It's uh, yes, it's a little but, bit like the golden age of television in that uh, everyone's willing to experiment with new and different formats. Exactly, uh, except that we're doing the same thing. It's just on a different platform. In other words, this is radio, right? You know, and we've had talk radio in the days of early Larry King and. Uh, and so it's not as if we have to learn a new skill or a new, you know, um, what what the social media has done is it's it's democratized the whole business because everyone's got a show now. In other words, anyone can have a show on social media. You know, you just put something up on Facebook or whatever and suddenly it's your show. You you know, you don't need to get network approval. You don't need to be hired. You don't need to, you know, you just turn your iPhone on or whatever. And uh, and there you go. Um, and that, you know, back then there were people sitting in Hollywood or in New York and the kingmakers would decide who who gets a show, who's the next star, who gets the next promotion. Who gets the next record deal? Nowadays, anyone can stand up and say, you know what? I'm going to sing and I hope you like it. And in fact, we've had the whole, and, and podcasts are part of that, the democratization 
well, first, the democratization of our whole society, and entertainment has gone along with that. So now we, the people, become the entertainers, and we, the people, decide who's going to be popular. So, you know, we have the shows, whether it's American Idol, America's Got Talent, or whatever. It's the people who vote for who the winner is, for who's going to have the next big album, or who's going to have the, you know, that's how stars are made now on social media or on these interactive TV shows. We call it reality TV. It's not really reality, but it is. It's it's anyone can be on now. And uh and I think that what has is what really, really changed. Um, but back then, someone at NBC had to decide that they were going to hire Milton Berle. You know, it was and, and that's, you know, that person or group of people made the decision, not the public. The public ultimately decided whether they liked him. And obviously, with the ratings, they did. But you're, you only had three stations or maybe four. And uh, so the competition was less. Well, it, clearly you are a uh, <laughs> one of the most popular stars of the television medium, uh, and uh, you've worked with uh, so many of them. One of the people who was at your Friars roast I saw was uh, Rodney Dangerfield. Yes, Rodney became a friend. In fact, uh, sadly, uh, when he passed away, his wife called me and uh, invited me to come out and speak at his funeral. And I was blown away. He, we once had him on our show, um, which was rare because our show never had celebrities on. Right. Uh, you know, we we did not, after the first two years when we went crazy, uh, you weren't allowed to be on the show if you were known. But everybody knew I was, the, the people who worked on my show knew that I was a Rodney Dangerfield fan. So I think they contacted his agent um, for one of my birthdays. And they, you know, because I never know who the guests would be. I wasn't allowed to know on our show. So I would just show up and hold a card and there'd be a name on it. And on the day of my birthday, well, at least the day we taped it, out comes, let's meet our first guest. Here is Rodney. You know, and I, it didn't dawn on me. It'd be, and out comes Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. And uh, so... And so we, you know, we became very friendly acquaintances. He was a big fan of the show. Um, and I guess our producers probably saw some article where he said he always watched the show and stuff like that. So th that's how it was arranged. And then, yes, um, we became friends and his lovely wife um, invited me to uh, speak there. Uh, I wasn't able to. Um, I mean, it was like the day or two before, you know, obviously when someone passes away, it, you move pretty quickly. And we were taping shows in, in New York. So I wasn't able to do it. I respectfully declined and, you know, send a, a heartfelt message to her, et cetera. But, um, yeah, that was my association with Rodney Dangerfield. Sure. I think he was I think he went to my public school. That's right. About twenty five years before, but right. I went to P. I went to PS ninety nine in Kew Gardens, which is in Queens, New York, and uh, he went to PS ninety nine too. How about that? A lot of famous alumni. <laughs> yes, I think we were the two, and and I remember at some point he was 
I guess I was mayor of Cincinnati at the time, and he was performing in Cincinnati. And we met, you know, we talked, met backstage. That probably was the first time I ever really met him because this I wasn't on television yet. This I was still in politics. And that's where the discussion was that, uh, I don't know how we got into it, but uh, yeah, you're from New York. Yeah, I was from New York too. Even though I was mayor of Cincinnati, I was a New Yorker. And hey, how you doing? You know, <laughs> we talked like that. And uh, yeah, and he said, yeah, you went to PS ninety nine. I said, you got to be kidding me. That's you know, that's why I go right on Q Gardens Road. How about yep. that? It's a small world, and it, it's funny you brought up. Uh, how you used to have uh, celebrities in the early years on your show on occasion. I was looking uh, on IMDb, and I, I don't know, I know you do so many shows a year, you know, it's hard to yeah. keep track of everyone who's been on. Do you remember uh, having Louis Nye on the show from the from the old Steve Allen show? Yes. Yeah. Right. We had, oh my gosh, yes. I think in... in uh... How we got him, I was in very, very early. It was like our maybe second year of doing the show, if not the first. And we did have some celebrities. My executive producer at the time was Bert Dubrow. Yes, uh, who I've become friendly with and uh, who will be oh, on uh, this great podcast. great guy. Yes, great guy. Um, and uh, he, uh, he loved... Well, his his great love in life was other than his wife and kids uh, was um, Howdy Doody. Uh, right. He is he is a collector of all the original Howdy Do Howdy Doody um, puppets, and uh, and if you go to his home, it's, it's like a museum. But he was Howdy showing Doody. me on Zoom. He was showing oh, sure. me Jerry Mahoney and oh the, yeah, the oh yeah. Was he great. was really into ventriloquists and all of that. And he loved the old time characters. And he, I, I don't know if we had him on because he was on Steve Allen. He was a character on Steve Allen, as was Tom Poston. Right. And uh, Don Knotts. Don Knotts, right, right, right. Don Knotts was the nervous one. Tom Poston, I think, was the one that forgot everything. He wasn't all there. Correct. Yeah. And oh then Louie and I said, hi, ho, Steve Arino. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, but they, they were on other shows after. Um, but yes, we had Louie Nye on. Absolutely. Yeah. How about that? You know, uh, Bert was telling me about a great experience that you had uh, working with Jerry Lewis on his muscular dystrophy. telethon. Oh, yeah. What do you remember He's about great. doing the telethon with Jerry and how did you land the telethon? Uh I have no idea how we landed it. Um, again, it probably came through Bert, uh, who knew Jerry Lewis. And, uh, you know, I can't remember the exact meeting or anything, but they knew I was involved in a whole bunch of, you know, various causes, et cetera. And, uh, and I guess they wanted the show, wanted to, the Labor Day Telethon wanted to reach out and start getting a younger audience. And this was, I think, the year 2000, 2001, 2002, something like that. And um, and back then I was still young or right. younger. <laughs> <laughs> so at least our audience was very young. So, right. you know, it was, that was part of it. <clears throat> and so it became uh, Jerry Lewis, of course, uh, Ed McMahon and myself. And for several years, we did the show. 
Uh, some years we did it in Vegas. Some years we did it in L.A. And Jerry was great. I mean, he was just so, so nice to me. And uh, we had some great times. Ed McMahon was a great guy. Uh, and I met a lot, a lot of the, for me, it was exciting because, you know, I'm not part of Hollywood. I'm not part of the showbiz community. You know, I, I've lived after growing up in New York, though, my adult life, I lived in Cincinnati. I lived in Chicago, Sarasota as where I live now. And I never was part of Hollywood. So I don't know any of these people, you know, maybe I'll meet them at an event but it's not like <clears throat> I have no one's phone number, you know, <laughs> so I, I don't hang with that crowd. But when you're doing the Jerry Lewis telethon, all these guys would come out. Now, one of my favorites of all time was Henny Youngman. And my memory of that was uh, the night of the show, you know, the first night, uh, Back in the, I go back in the green room, you know, there's, there's a break, you know, we were out on stage and then I go back and in the green room, uh, because coming out next, after we come back from the break would be Henny Youngman. And I'm going, oh my gosh, but he's sitting there. He's also 92 years old at the time. And he's sitting there in the green room in a chair with his eyes closed and I really thought he had died. Really? He just, I mean, he was white as a ghost and just sitting there. And his wife's there. And I say, is he okay? She, yeah, he just, you know, he just rests. And, he, oh, he was in a wheelchair. And, uh, you know, is he ready to come on? Yeah, just roll him out there. So, sure enough, uh, we go back out. We're doing the thing. And. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is, the king of the one-liners. Take my wife, please. Henny Youngman. And they roll him out. His eyes are still closed. They roll him to the microphone. All of a sudden, he stands up. Boom. Three, four minutes of perfect timing. The audience is going crazy. One, one one-liner after another. One joke after another. Boom, boom, boom. It's like, oh, my gosh, this guy's 25 years old. He hasn't lip missed a thing. Then it's his final joke. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Sits back down in the chair, eyes closed, and it looks like he died again. And we <laughs> roll him off. It was unbelievable. It's like that was his life. By that point, you know, his body was 92 years old and he was just exhausted. But when the lights went on, it's like a cliche. But when the lights went on, I saw it with my own eyes. He stood up on his own and nailed it. It was what a professional. And the crowd just loved it. And he was so gracious and so nice. And, you know, it. Uh, yeah, and then 
you know, soon after that. It seems like everyone I talk to dies soon after. So <laughs> I, better, I haven't met you in person. Yeah, yeah. You better <laughs> cut this short. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got to update my life insurance policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> However minuscule it might be. Yeah. And Henny Young- That was great. Henny Youngman. That was one of the thrills of my life. Henny, of course, was a member of the Friars for many years. He was a fixture here in New York yeah. at the Friars Club. You'd walk yes. in and he was there all the time oh, yeah. playing Pinochle yeah. and- uh, of course, I never met him. I'm, I'm far too young, yeah. but uh, the, though I'm old in soul. Uh, <laughs> um, but let, let me ask you a question. Did you ever have any aspirations to pursue uh, stand-up comedy at all? Well, I not in terms of a career, although for 27 years on my show, I always did the warm-up. So every day I would do about seven minutes of stand-up. What did your warm-up entail? Well, <laughs> just, the. I mean, these were really old, old jokes, uh, <laughs> you know, that, um, you know, get, coming on the elevator into the studio, I guess the, there's an older gentleman in the audience, I can't see him right now, but he said, oh, I was on the elevator with him, he says, oh, Jerry Springer, he says, I got this new hearing aid. I said, well, wonderful. He says, no, this is the finest hearing aid money can buy. I say, yeah, what kind is it? He said, four o'clock. <laughs> wow. So that's why I didn't go into stand-up. <laughs> <laughs> I think you well, could have done it. You had some You had some quick lines on there, uh, juggling the show, uh, playing ringmaster to all of your uh, well, that, wild guests. Well, that was my, uh, in truth, that... That was my job. In other words, I was never allowed to know who the guests were. So you would see me every show carrying the card around, which, you know, says Jerry Springer. And but on the other side, facing me were only the names of the guests. Uh, They didn't want me knowing what the show was about. So my responses, my comments would be authentic. If I if I knew what was going to happen, then any reaction I had would look fake. You know, oh, oh, really? You did that? You know, so I had the same reaction someone sitting at home watching the show would have. So my job, that's why every segment of the show always started with me introducing the guest, the name I had in the card, and then saying, so what's going on? That was always my first question. So what's going on? They would start with a story. And then my job was to, as I said, ask questions that you would ask sitting at home watching and then make jokes. And, uh, so I was there. So that was the work on it for me on the show. It wasn't the preparation. Was that for the one hour I was on, I had to be really paying attention because I had to try to be funny with a situation that I didn't know what it was going to be. You know, make some quips. Um, you know, don't be disrespectful, but you know, make some jokes. And uh, so that's what I was paid for, basically. You always used to hear about uh, Johnny Carson and uh, how he had such a regimented schedule every day. Call Fred DeCorda for the producer at 10 o'clock. Yeah. He'd uh, come in about one thirty. What uh, was your schedule like when you were doing uh, the Jerry Springer show, the talk show? Um, that's a good question. I, I would come in about an hour and a half before the show and then, uh, you know, have my Starbucks and uh, then, you know, meet with my assistant and we go through the schedule, you know, there'd be answer the mail, there'd be requests, you know, will you do this show? Will you come and speak there? Whatever. 
Um, so we went through the schedule. And then at some point, um, if there were any phone calls to make, you know, sometimes call general managers of the various affiliates that carried our show. So it was the business side. And then at a, about 20 minutes before, I'd go on, they'd put makeup on. I mean, I'd go do makeup. And then they'd uh, have me go out, do the warm-up. And uh, did that for, as I said, about seven minutes or so. And uh, then go backstage and uh, horse around with the camera guys and everything. And then go out and do the show. And how many would you tape in a day? uh, We did uh, either two or three a day. Um, It changed from week to week. But I'd say for a lot of times, it would be... We'd tape three shows on Monday, two on Tuesdays. So it was we did five a week. And uh and then I was still until very recently, I'm still active in it, but very active in politics. So I would travel around the country uh giving political speeches, raising money. So I did a lot of political work. And uh and then I had other shows as well um that I was doing. Whether it was uh, America's Got Talent or Baggage, um, and uh, I did the live tour of um, The Price is Right. Right. And um, so, I, I, you know, I was staying very busy. And so, you know, the Jerry Springer show was just one of my jobs, and uh, I loved doing it. And then I had, yeah, I had the radio show. What am I saying? I had Springer on the radio, which was on um, Air America, you know, very liberal radio. Right. And and I did that. And that was difficult because that was three hours every morning. And when you're on the air, particularly with a political show where you have to be because everyone who's calling in knows more about the subject than you do. You know what I mean? There. Yeah. You don't call into a political show unless you already have your ideas. So I had to be so well prepared. You know, I didn't have to prepare for my show, for the Jerry Springer show, but for the radio show, you, you know, I had to do three hours of research for every three hours I was on. So that's when the schedule got really tough. So I did the uh, radio show Monday through Friday, um, and we aired it 9 to 12. So, you know, I was at the studio at 6 in the morning. Um that was a grueling schedule. And then we did the TV shows in the afternoon and early evening. But I was younger, so, you know, I, I would have the energy. Today, I probably wouldn't have the energy. Nah, but you still look pretty youthful to me, Jerry. And, uh, you know, it's funny because you mentioned earlier how you were saying, you know, how you're not necessarily part of show business. But really, you, you've had a, quite a few uh, <laughs> big uh, ties to show business, one of them being uh, hosting America's Got Talent. Uh, seasons two and three. Which yeah. acts on that show were you the most bowled over by and the most impressed by while you were hosting the show? Oh, wow. Uh, there was, uh, well, one, there was this, oh, God, I'm embarrassed. The name escapes me. She was a young girl and she had an incredible voice. And she had a, she came out and she turned out to have a pretty successful career. I mean, she had a great Christmas album. Oh, I can't think of her name. She was about 11 years old at the time she was on the show. I know who you're talking about. I can't think of her name either. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, because it was, this was 
2007 and 2008. So, you know, we're talking 15, 16 years ago. Um, but anyway, that was one. And then there was this fellow who won it, uh, who had a great operatic voice. He was an opera singer. And um, he was a young man from uh, from the inner city. And uh, he had a, a, a tough childhood growing up. And he just, and you get the feeling that he probably was the only one in his building that sang opera. And yet his, he just blew people away. Um, but I, I loved doing that show. I mean, it really was the all-American show because it could be a kid um, outside of Kansas City, you know, living in a, living in her very modest home growing up. Every night she's in front of the mirror singing into a tooth, uh, into a hairbrush, you know, thinking one day she's going to. And she tries out for America's Got Talent. And all of a sudden she's a national. You know, it was like the dream was suddenly possible for every kid. It's like what we talked about before, the democratization of the media, of, of uh, entertainment, that there was no way in the world. You know, it was a one in a billion chance, a million chance that she would uh, get a chance in the old days. But she just went to a local audition and did great at the audition. And then she went to the state level and then she comes and auditions on the show and is going around the country looking for talent. And uh, there she is. She's on national television and she gets week after week. It, it's a wonderful, wonderful and th that's what's true of all these stories. None of these kids that appeared on America's Got Talent were known anywhere. You know, maybe one kid played the guitar in a local bar, you know, and he was known by 27 people. And uh, that's what was so great about that show. I, I really, really enjoyed doing that. I would have wanted to continue doing that, but then I got real lucky in 2009, the third year, which would have been my third year of doing it, I got to play uh, Billy Flynn in the musical uh, Chicago on Broadway. Right. And in the West End. And that that was really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because, you know, when you get an opportunity to be on Broadway or in the West End in London, you know, it's never going to come around again. And it's not like I'm a great singer or dancer. Oh, I beg to differ. I saw you <clears throat> on uh, The Masked Singer, and I was quite impressed. As I said, as I said, <laughs> I'm not a dancer or a singer. Oh, that was fun on The Masked Singer. That was the, the worst part about it for me. The hardest part about it for me was they put this big outfit on you. Right. Okay? So, uh, Do you get to pick the outfit? Do you have any no. say in what you're going to wear? No, I guess I could say, I'm not going to do that. But no, yeah, whatever they did, they did. You know, that it's an entertainment show. It's not my show. So uh, they had me as a Beatle, not the singing group, but as the bug, the Beatle. And uh, and this head they put on you, styrofoam or whatever, paper mache, but is, is massive. Right. The problem is when they put it on your head when they put the whole outfit on you not only are you sweating like a pig um <laughs> because you're under the lights it's all i mean it's just you're dripping and under this big head the worst part was 
the eyes, which I could look, which is supposed to look out for and see where you're going, the eyes weren't lined up when you started moving with my eyes. The <laughs> holes in the mask weren't. Right. So I couldn't see. It was pitch black. And I didn't know where the end of the stage was. I lost where the panel was. So I was afraid I was going to, by the time the song ended, I would be with my back to the panel. I would fall off the stage. <laughs> and I couldn't see a prompter. So if I forgot the words, I was out of luck. Did you at least it, get to pick the song? This was, well... In the end, you approved the song. I gave a list of songs, and at least it gave them the idea. I said, you know, I'm not a – I've got a range of about eight – you know, one octave. <laughs> so – and I like ballads. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do a rap song. I'm not going to be able to do something that's real popular right now. You know, my generation is, you know – uh, Tony Bennett, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, those guys. Great to the Friars Club. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I want to do a ballad, and so they did. They did give me a ballad, and uh, it was a beautiful song, um, "The Way You Look Tonight." And uh, so in the rehearsals, I felt fine, but I'm not wearing that big outfit. <laughs> It was a miracle that I got through it. And, uh, and you know, I said to them, I joke with them, each week they have three acts. And two of the acts are always professional singers. I mean, major, the people that tour, I mean, they're really professional singers. Right. And then there's one that's just the known personality to give the show some balance. And, of course, that's the one that's always voted off. And I said, wait a second. You know, as I was doing this, it suddenly dawned on me. And I said, the reason I know I'm going to be voted off is there was no rehearsal for my second song. <laughs> In other words, if, let's say, I would have not been voted off first, well, I didn't have any other song. <laughs> they never even asked me what the second song is. And they all laughed when I said that to the producers. Who are you kidding? <laughs> and you only got the reservation in the hotel for one night. I got to check out. <laughs> the operator called me in the morning, says, you want early checkout? I said, what are you talking about? They said, well, they only reserved one night for you. <laughs> oh, man. And let me tell you, Jerry, take it from somebody who has worked as a professional mascot uh, for some time in my younger yeah. days. I, I can feel your pain wearing the uh, Beatle costume. Thank you. Thank you. People don't get it. Well, you do. Bless I was you. a Red Robin, so it was a, it was a, oh, it was yeah. a little oh. better than being a uh, a bug. <laughs> What's that? The the the, the uh, hamburger place? Yes, I worked at my local Red Robin, and I went in <laughs> and I said, "I want to be the Red Robin." Yes. This is when I'm in oh. high school, and they yeah. said, "Well, nobody wants to do it, so go ahead and be yeah. our guest." <laughs> well, with your red hair, that would have been perfect. Uh, well, you, you know it. <laughs> yeah, I was born for the role. What what can I? You say? were <laughs> the original Red Robin. <clears throat> you know, I was. I was watching um, uh, a panel recently. Uh, it, it was from a few years ago out in Chicago when uh, Antenna TV launched the uh, Johnny Carson 
uh, reruns. And I heard oh, that sure. you were there in the audience. Now, yeah, with uh, Sean Compton. Right, right. And uh, Jeff Sotsing was there yes. and Doc yeah. Severinsen. Doc uh, Severinsen, right. I drove Doc Severinsen back to his hotel after that evening. Really? That was my, yeah, he was so nice. He really was. And uh, yeah, so I drove him back and we chatted for a while and laughed at things. And uh, he was just a regular guy and obviously incredibly talented. He just did his last show uh, out in the Saratoga Springs, I think, last year. Yeah, uh, or something I like that. I think he's like yeah. 95 or something now. He's, he must be. If I'm 79, then yeah, yeah, yeah. He was 10 years old, 15 years old. He's quite yeah. a talent. Uh, before we wrap up, you know, we recently lost one of our friars, uh, Barbara Walters. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And you, of course, were named by Barbara Walters as one of uh, her 10 most fascinating people of 1998. Mm-hmm. What do you yeah. remember about being interviewed by Barbara Walters? And what's it like to sit across from somebody who could be – Pretty intimidating. And obviously, you know, with your career in politics, with your career in television, people throwing chairs, not a lot intimidates you. But I I wondered what it was like to sit across. It was it was wonderful. But I've been interviewed by her. I had been interviewed by her a lot. In other words, I'd been on The View. I'd been just in news stories. She covered me. So uh, but I think you're probably right. Ninety eight was probably the first time. Yeah, that was the first time I was interviewed by her. It was, you know, your first of all, how bad could it be? She's just named you one of the ten most fascinating people, right? You know, she did tell the Kardashians they don't have talent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you're well, a talented guy. But... No, I, I'm not. And if she had said that, that would have been redundant. I mean, <laughs> say Jerry Springer is no. T- I mean, I don't have talent, and and that, and I'm not being falsely modest here. I I think I'm a nice guy and I think I'm reasonably bright, but uh, I'm not talented in the terms of show business. You know, I'm not this great singer. Seriously, I'm not this great dancer. I don't look like a hunk. I'm not a great actor. You know, it's whatever you would check off the boxes for people that want to go into show business. No one in high school picked me out or college or law school said, this guy's going to be in showbiz. It was never my intention to be in showbiz. Um, in fact, I never applied for a job in showbiz. I was literally assigned it after I was doing the news for 10 years. Uh, I was anchoring the news for the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati. And the company that owned the station where I did the news, and we were pretty dominant in the ratings, uh, they also own they own talk shows. They own Phil Donahue, Sally Jesse Raphael, etc. And Phil was retiring. So one day, Walter Bartlett, the CEO of the company, took me to lunch and said, Phil's retiring. We're starting another talk show. You're going to host it. So I was assigned to it. I mean, they adjusted the salary. They still let me do the news. So I would get up in the morning in Cincinnati, fly to Chicago, do the talk show, and then the afternoon fly back to Cincinnati because I did the news every night at 5.36 and 11. So that's how I got into show business. It had nothing to do. I never went through what most kids go through who want to be in showbiz. They go to auditions. They try out. The only job in my life I ever applied for um, was uh, mayor, you know, because you have to run for that and be elected. Right. But short of that, I've never gone to an interview for a job. And it's like, what a charmed life I've been living. I mean, I realize it's 99.9% luck. And 
you know, and I thank God every day for it. Well, you've been self-deprecating about your show over the years, and uh, for good reason. And, and well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I but what I will say, Jerry, is that uh, to last uh, from 1991 to 2018. Uh, you got to have something. Uh, I know you think you don't have talent, but you clearly have an appeal and a charm, and I do think a talent to connect with an audience because nobody lasts in this business that long without uh, having uh, that touch uh, with an audience. So uh, you, you you clearly uh, have a lot of staying power. Well, you're kind, but honestly, I'm like everybody else. I mean, think about who your friends are. You know, this is... We just talk. We're a bunch of guys talking, joking. Sometimes we get upset. Sometimes we laugh. I mean, it's just being a regular person. I, you know, when I think of my closest friends, you know, that I've had ever since being a kid, I'm not the funniest one in the group. I'm not the best athlete in the group. I'm not the smartest in the group. I'm not a, you know, I'm one of the guys. And maybe, maybe that's what worked for the show is that people could Young people could come to the show and not think that they were being talked down to. Right. That I was older than them, but yeah, that's just Jerry. That's Uncle Jerry. <laughs> yeah, you Uncle know. Jerry. <laughs> yeah, he's not going to get angry at us. Come on. You know, it's that kind of thing. So, I, you know, you just do what your mom told you to do, and, and that's, it's not that difficult. I swear to God, that's not that difficult. If you become a snob... If you become judgmental, if you get to think you're better than anyone else, that's when you run into trouble. Uh, you used the word judgmental. And before I let you go, I, I did have one thing that I have been wondering uh, for the longest time, and that is that you uh, did uh, the Judge Jerry show for a couple of years. Yes. And uh, I, I'm trying to figure out, did you actually have to become a judge? How does one become a television judge if they're not already a judge like Judge Judy, Judge well, Wapner? You know, if if you're a lawyer already, right? But you, you went know, to law school and you were a lawyer. Yeah, first. yeah. I'm, I was I practiced for a while, so yeah, I'm an attorney. So, uh, you know, how you normally become a judge is you run for office. Uh, you know, and and so statutorily you are a judge in that. Um, so in terms of the education, you're there. Uh, when people came on the show, and this is true of all the judge shows, whether it was Judge Judy or Judge Mathis, whatever, um, with all of them, um, you agree, um, you agree to bring your case before this, before the judge, this judge, in this case, me, you have to agree to it. And uh, you sign a waiver that whatever decision this judge makes, it will not be appealed. So it does have the binding of law. And obviously, they pick people that are lawyers to be the television judges. Except for Steve Harvey. Yeah, but that's purely (laughs) an entertainment type of, you know, that's more a game show kind of thing. (laughs) But these were real cases. It's small claims. It uh, was either had to be five thousand dollars or less or seven thousand dollars or less, depending what state it came from. But you you applied the law of the state from which these people filed the cases. And what was neat about it is no one could file a case wanting to come on television. Because how the show worked, and this is true, I assume, of all these shows, is we have producers 
And each one, let's say, is assigned to two states in the union. So they're 25 um, 25 producers. They each have a two-state region. And every morning they get up and go to their computer and look for all the cases that have been filed in those two states the day before. If it's an interesting case, they call the plaintiff and the defendant and say, would you like to have your case adjudicated on national television with Jerry being the judge? And, you know, obviously you'll bunch of people would probably say, no, I, nah, I don't want to go on national television. And some people say, oh, yeah, that'd be cool. And so they get to be on national television. But it's not the kind of thing that they can file a suit and say, oh, we're going to get on television because you have a one in a million shot of getting a call. You know, and if you file in a court, you have to file in a real court. Your lawsuit. uh if you file, you have to go through, you know, you're going through with that case, whether or not you get a call from television or not. So the cases are all real. And uh, and therefore, as a judge, even though I could tell some jokes once in a while, I still had to be serious when I'm making a judgment and applying the law, as I said, of the state that they're from, of the jurisdiction they're from. Well, uh, Jerry, I have kept you far too long, so uh, to to wrap things up, uh, let me conclude by asking, why is it that you think the Friars Club, uh, which we're so fortunate to have you a member of here in New York, and of course you're roasted in Los Angeles, uh, you have so much history with the organization, why do you think it uh, continues to endure and uh, last after over 100 years in existence? Because it's so authentic. I mean, this is... These are people who have built a career out of something they love, were successful at, and it's never out of your blood. From the days of vaudeville, to radio, to television, to stand-up comedians, to movies, it's these are the people which all the rest of us steal from, get hints, clues from. Uh, it's a fraternity. It's like old-time retired football players. They're a fraternity. You know, if you've been through that experience, every one of the people who have been through entertainment, they know what it's like to bomb on stage. They, what it, they know what it's like to have the audience cheer you. And at the same time, there are nights when you just get booed off the stage. You know, it, we've been through it all. You go from town to town. You, you, you stay in these hotels. It's the same meal every night. It's, you know, maybe you perform at casinos and, you know, just the sound of the slot machines in your ears for you've been there for three weeks. You're just going crazy. I mean, all the stories that you have, it's a fraternity or a sorority. And uh, that's why as long as there's showbiz, there'll always be a friars. Well, Jerry, all I can say is it's uh, an honor to be part of the same fraternity as you. It's a pleasure to have you uh, with us. And I thank you for joining me today on this podcast because I've had the good fortune to talk to you a couple times in the past, but it's a treat to talk to you in depth about uh, 
uh, your experiences with so many of these greats in the business and uh, with the Friars Club and your career. So uh, thank you for your time. It's a, a well, real delight. Well, thank you. How nice you are. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Well, Take it easy. Listen, uh, I will uh, be sure to get you fitted for a Red Robin costume as soon as possible. <laughs> okay. You got a deal. <laughs> yeah. Take care, Jerry. Thank you yeah. again. Absolutely. I Thanks appreciate it. Me. Thanks for listening to the Friars Club podcast. Please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. For more information on the Friars Club, please visit FriarsClub.com. We hope to see you there.